Hey, this is Andrew Maine and the Maniac Podcast. I just got back in last night from New York where I made a, an appearance on the Dr. Oz show, which should be appearing this week, I think February 6th, and it'll be on VH1's best week ever, having a bit of fun. Somebody may die. Now let's jump right into the questions. What I love about this podcast is that people will send me questions ranging from things about the show to the outer limits of our imagination. It's pretty awesome. Joseph writes in, based solely upon recent news like the work of SpaceX and conversely of people like James Cameron, which of the various sci-fi universes is our world becoming the most like? That's a great question, Joseph. Of course, the problem is trying to predict the future. You're always going to be wrong because the future is unpredictable. But you can certainly maybe look for trends. And as people who listen to weird things know, that one of the things we talk about a lot is how things get better, but people don't realize it. We tend to be very pessimistic, and we don't pay attention to how much things have improved for just about everybody on the planet. And I think that's a trend that's going to continue, even though we may not agree with things that are happening in shorter periods of time, politically, economically, or what have you. The overall trend is that things continue to get better, even though we have big setbacks. The 20th century, we had World War I, World War II, we had the Cold War, but we ended that century way better off than we started. Continuing that trend forward, you know, there's a concept talked about in economics and science fiction economics in particular called the post-scarcity economy. The post-scarcity economy is the idea that we get to a point where material goods or having things isn't really a question anymore. Everybody gets fed, everybody gets clothed, everybody has shelter, and really the only thing that there's some sort of limited amount of would maybe be real estate. Not everybody gets to live in a beachfront home, but everybody gets to have the niceties. And you can see that we're approaching a post-scarcity economy and the fact that if you look at the people who are, let's say, the bottom 10% of income around the world today versus 50 years ago, that bottom 10% has improved dramatically. Now, you can look at that in other countries. You look at that in the United States, where the poorest of the poor didn't have cars, didn't have telephones. Now they do. Now, of course, there are outliers there, and there will always be outliers. But as far as where the future is going to go, one of my favorite book series is the culture novels by Ian Banks. And the culture is basically a civilization where, through the use of artificial intelligence, advanced technology, nanotechnology, we've solved pretty much most of the material problems we have now, and people get to pursue uh, lives that we would describe as lives of leisure. And a lot of the stories take place on the fringes of that civilization because trying to deal with people who are just sitting around all day getting suntans and reading poetry isn't exciting as dealing with people who have to deal with the conflicts with other civilizations. As far as what our future is going to resemble, I think that's what we're headed towards. A post-scarcity society doesn't mean a society without conflicts or problems. If you look at the leading cause of death in the United States today, you deal with things like cigarettes, obesity, these are conditions caused by excess, by having availability of too much stuff, rather than a couple hundred years ago when a leading cause of death would be malnutrition and starvation. Now it's the opposite. We have trouble controlling ourselves. I think going into the future, we're going to find different ways to indulge, different ways to push the limits to what we can do. Of course, medical technologies will improve, and then we're going to have to deal with psychological problems. Just because you're wealthy or materially wealthy doesn't mean that you're happy. Rich people have just as many problems as everybody else, but they're able to deal with them differently. So as far as what the future looks like, you know, the future's a big, long time. The future is bigger than our past. 
I think that within 50 years, we're going to see the exploration of space, at least within our solar system, increase dramatically. I think you're going to see people working and living in space. I think that we're going to talk about having real space habitats. I think the future of space exploration for people is that we're going to spend more time living in artificial habitats than actually living on planets. If you can get your materials and your energy, why bother living on a planet? I think that Artificial intelligence in the next 10 years to 20 years is going to continue to develop rapidly. We're going to look back at Siri and the Google Voice interactions as being archaic just compared to what we're going to see in a few years from now. And we're going to reach a point when we'll talk to machines, artificial intelligence, and have conversations with them that are just as meaningful and useful as talking to people. Will we assume that they're sentient like we are? I don't know. I think that's going to come down to how each of us feels about that. But I think the future is going to be a bright, big place, not without peril, but I think it's going to follow the trend that we've been following so far where things get better. The lovely Stacy Baldwin writes in and writes. First, she starts off, are you single? Just kidding. She says, actually, I have two questions. Well, I, I am still single. She says, is there a specific person, parent, teacher that inspired you growing up? If so, why? Uh, I would say the answer to both of those is yes. You know, my dad has been just an awesome example, a, a great parent, a great teacher. He encouraged me. He helped me build my first magic props. He's always just supported me, and I'm so thankful for my dad and my mom as well. I had a teacher in high school, Mr. Friedman, who understood what it meant to be a dreamer, and he encouraged that. And I'm very grateful for that. He was one of the first few adults outside of my family to take my crazy ideas seriously. Stacy's next question is, what do you enjoy doing the most, if any, creating, performing magic, podcasting, or writing? If you had to choose one, which would it be? Well, I like all of the above, and I like to be able to go back and forth between them. I will tell you that what I like about writing is that I get to wake up whenever I want, I get to pull anything I want out of my imagination, and then I get to share it with people. And that's pretty satisfying, and I also have a higher degree of control over that, for better or for worse. But I think you have to do a lot of things. And as far as what makes me the most happiest, I don't know. But writing's pretty fun. Here's a question from Aaron, which may have been meant for the Weird Things podcast, but I'm going to go ahead and answer it here. He writes that he's halfway through Angel Killer. And he wants to know, was writing from a woman's perspective for Angel Killer difficult? What was your process for it? Well, Aaron, trying to write from the point of view of anybody other than yourself is, is always going to be difficult. I'm a big believer in understanding the concept of theory of mind, and that's trying to understand how other people see the world. And I don't think we pay as much attention to this idea as we could. We often look at things from our point of view and then nominally sort of give an idea of how other people might think about them, but we don't work as hard as we could to understanding how other people see things. And that doesn't mean you have to justify the way other people see the world, but it does mean you should understand it. In writing the Jessica Blackwood character for Angel Killer... I took a deep look at my relationship with some ex-girlfriends, and be honest with you, I looked at times when I screwed up or I didn't understand what was making them upset and tried to figure out what was going on in their head and seeing it from their point of view and build kind of a model in my mind of how they might see the world and how they'd perceive things. And from there, I moved forward with the Jessica character and took in my own vulnerabilities, took in the vulnerabilities I understood from other people, our own insecurities, and tried to apply them to her. I didn't try to go way off into the female point of view. I just tried to stick to what is a normal human point of view. And that seemed to work pretty well. He goes on to write, you're churning out books pretty damn fast. Any concern with burnout? The answer is no. I wish I had more time to write. I love to write. 
I have so many ideas I'm trying to get out of my head and I feel like I'm just not keeping up with the pace. Doing this TV show this year, we shot a bunch of episodes of that and I managed to find the time to write a couple novels and some novellas, but I wished I had more time to write. And now I'm trying to get better at managing my time so I can write more. So burnout, not really worried about that yet. Finally, Justin writes, when do you feel it's okay to reveal how a magic trick works? And then it goes on, can you give an example who has done this well? Can you give an example without spoiling the trick of someone who has done this poorly? For me, the answer is fairly simple. There's really only two criteria. One is, I don't think you should reveal a magic trick to somebody who doesn't have any interest in learning how to perform magic. Just showing somebody how a trick works to satisfy their own curiosity ruins magic. They're not going to get any further enjoyment out of it. So that's the first thing, is I don't think you should reveal a trick to somebody who doesn't want to do it. If they just want to know, no, that's not what a magic trick is meant for. The second criteria is to make sure that you have permission to reveal a trick. A lot of magic tricks, you know, every magic trick was invented by somebody. Maybe it's an old trick and the creator's been lost to time, or it's a trick that's been around for quite a while, but the method's out there and nobody really claims ownership of it. That's one thing. But if it's somebody else's magic trick, you really don't have permission to reveal it. And I think that's something to be very careful of. If somebody's actively out there creating magic tricks, using their show, selling them or whatever, and it's their idea, then you need to be respectful of that. First and foremost is you shouldn't reveal a magic trick to somebody who doesn't have an interest in learning it. And make sure that it's okay to reveal it. Well, we reached the end here at Maniac. Thank you for listening in. If you have any questions, send them to questions at andrewmain.com and I'll do my best to answer it. Till then, check out a e for more episodes of Don't Trust Andrew Maine. Also, there's a new Weird Things podcast coming out. We're trying to do this on a regular basis, so stay tuned for more. I'll talk to you later. Keep it weird, folks.